But I think there's a tipping point for a lot of people in life. You have so many things or so much money, but it doesn't mean that you're going to be happy, right? It doesn't in and of itself make you happy. But I think that's what we're told. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. A blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Well, welcome listeners. I'm so excited. I have Katherine Burmeister. She's a motivational speaker, an attorney, and an author of the book called Overcoming Addiction to the Status Quo. Welcome, Katherine. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm so excited. So uh, I, listeners, have a cold. Do not worry. It is not the Rona. It is simply an old-fashioned cold. I do not feel bad. I will apologize for the nasally voice today. Sorry, Catherine, that you get you get this beautiful voice today. It's beautiful, so we're good. <laughs> okay, good. All right, give us a little bit of background. Where are you from? Sure. So, basics. I'm born and raised in Georgia, which makes me a sort of a unicorn, uh, an anomaly down here. Why? Why? Yeah. So in Atlanta, it's a huge transplant oh. city, um, and so a lot of people have moved there from other places. And so, really, it's very few and far Transient. between you'll find people, yeah, yeah, that are actually born and raised here. So my folks are both from out of state, up north, and moved down south. But I'm born and raised here. So I'm in Woodstock, Georgia, which is North Metro Atlanta. Okay. Um, how far, how long does that take to get to Atlanta from there? Oh, it's about 20, 25 miles. Got it. Okay. So it will. So in Atlanta traffic, it takes like <laughs> two hours. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's insane. But frequently, uh, now these days it's not so bad, but yeah, so that's just North Metro Atlanta. Um, okay. only child. I went to Mercer university for undergrad, which is a local, uh, college, uh, private college. And then I went back there for law school, uh, because it was nice and small. And I liked the idea of having that relationship with my professors, um, instead of just being a number at a, a bigger school. So only child, did mm -hmm. your parents want more children or they always just wanted one? I think they considered briefly having another one and, yeah. um, the stress, I think quite frankly, and just everything that goes into it. Um, my mom really didn't want to go through having another one. So I was very fortunate as a child. I was obviously the only one that, you know, had to be taken care of. So I was able to go on trips and do a lot of things that might not have otherwise happened. Yeah. So I was fortunate. Did your parents work, Catherine? It, my, okay. Let me rephrase that inside or outside the home. Yeah. So my dad worked outside the home um, for Delta for 40 some odd years before he retired. Uh, my mom worked as I was, when I was little, um, as a nurse practitioner's aide, and yeah. then she just stayed at home while I was growing up. So, and what'd your dad do at Delta? He was a flight dispatcher. Well, actually, let me back up. He started okay. out working on the ramp in Chicago in the winter wow. and then moved down to Miami and was working for Delta, uh, and then ended up being in Atlanta. So he worked his way from like literally directing traffic, cleaning cabins to being a flight dispatcher, which talks with the pilots and with air traffic control and with the airport people um, that are, you know, sending and receiving the plane. So kind of a logistics manager in a sense. Uh, I always like to understand the family, your family, because that always impacts 
your passions and, and choices and things like that. So I'm curious. Yeah. So very yeah, I definitely agree. I, I touched on that in my book, actually. Uh, one of my chapters is nature and nurture. Um, and I think not my parents cause problems. That's not what I'm saying, but we are very naturally, I think, impacted by the people that we live around and grow up around. And yeah. since they were the only ones, um, that definitely shaped who I am as an individual to the extent that my personality didn't shape it in other ways. So very cool. Okay. So any immediate family down there? Or- Actually, most of my immediate family. So my mom's okay. two sisters are down here. Um, one of them is married and has two, I have two cousins. So I was the only grandchild on one side of the family Yeah. period. And then I was one grandchild, only grandchild on the other side of the family for 10 years. So, um, things revolved around me to say the least for a while. Um, and then my dad had a sister, um, she passed away of breast cancer a few years ago. Um, and my uncle that lives up in Dahlonega, which is North Georgia. So that's my immediate family, really. My grandparents have all passed. Um, yeah. So So I've I've never, because I was middle of three, your comment around world revolves around me. And I'm not saying this facetiously. I'm really asking, like, what is that like? Because that uh, is something I never knew. Yeah, and it's um, it's interesting. It's I, I, because I was around adults all the time. I think yeah. I matured faster um, than maybe other children might. I prefer being around people that were older than me. Um, I dated older than me a lot of the time. Um, now it's, you know, not that big of a difference, but when I was 15, 16, dating 17, 18 year olds, it was kind of a big difference. Um, and I mean, I enjoyed it. It wasn't like my, my family fawned over me. They were supportive, but it wasn't, uh, a babying type thing. They were very, you know, straight to the point, but yeah, you have a lot of people that are supporting you. So birthdays, like everybody's there. You know, I did horseback riding competitively growing up. Um, everybody was there. So it, there's, I think, uh, a subconscious pressure maybe associated with that, just not wanting to disappoint people. Um, yeah. And I think that probably comes a lot with being an only child as well. Um, an only child and in a family that was very um, stable. Mom and dad stay together. There was their only marriage um, and they're still yeah. together. So it's, uh, I think that definitely influenced things a little bit in a positive way, um, right. but definitely impacted me growing up. Okay. So uh, I want to get to the book and the lessons of the book, but I also want you to take our listeners through what happened and occurred in your life to get you to the point of writing this book. So, and what I'm about to say is the backdrop of the book as well. So I, uh, had always wanted to be a lawyer. I say always since middle school. Um, I've been an avid reader since I was young and I read to kill a mockingbird and letter from a Birmingham jail during that timeframe. Um, very obviously MLK was not a lawyer, but the idea of having just laws, um, and unjust laws really spoke to me. And then that with to kill a mockingbird showed me how much of a difference could be made, um, by being a lawyer, uh, really standing up for something powerful, um, that necessarily wouldn't, wasn't necessarily what was, um, the status quo. Um, so that influenced me and I very much decided then and there that I wanted to be a lawyer. So I backtracked, like, how do I, how do I do that? Nobody in my family was a lawyer. Nobody was in the legal field. Um, 
my grandfather my mom's side was the only one that had gone to college yeah um so I just figured out like what I needed to do and started setting myself on that path so my first legal job was in high school uh I did joint enrollment my senior year which means like you go to college to take the classes um as opposed to doing like what's called AP at least down here AP and getting credit you know, potentially getting credit. That was the thing. You may or may not get it, but I actually went to the college, took the classes, and then I went and worked in a law firm. So in high school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I did that and that was my first legal job. And then from there I went to uh different size firms in different practice areas. So I really exposed myself to a lot, figured out what I didn't want to do. Um I worked big firm, I worked a medium size educational defense firm. Uh, general practice. So it really ran the gamut of, uh, you know, areas and sizes and everything. So it was good. I mean, even the ones that were not so great experiences, it still taught me something. Yeah. Um, But then my last year in law school, I was able to uh, work at a personal injury firm and I fell in love with it. And perfect world, I would do animal law. Um, But turns out that doesn't pay the bills. So I'm a big animal person. Uh, I do animal rescue. I have for a number of years. Um, I have a full menagerie now. So the rescuing part in my home doesn't happen so much, but, um, so the advocacy part I love, but really it's a very specialized area. Um, and a lot of it happens mostly on the West coast. So since I was already established here, my husband was established here, our family's here. It just made most sense to be able to do that on the side in the background. It's like pro bono stuff. Um, nice. but then the personal like a hobby. Yeah. 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 Um, but then the personal injury side was nice because it really, uh, filled that void for me. So I felt like, you know, when doing animal advocacy, it's giving the voiceless a voice and it's kind of the same thing with personal injury. It's very much that David and Goliath mentality when you're going against insurance companies, which is who I go up against. And when I represent my clients, so, um, it really filled that void for wanting to help other people, um, and help, or, you know, and, animals or people, but help others and give them a voice, uh, when they may not otherwise have one. So that was my first experience, um, in a personal injury firm. A lot of people, what they do is they, uh, don't get to go right in on the plaintiff side and the plaintiff side is representing the individuals against the insurance companies. So a lot of people will go insurance defense, stay there for a few years and make a lateral move. Okay. Um, not one to, you know, just go with the the grain, I decided I was going to hold out to the best that I could and go straight to a plaintiff's firm. And so I was able to do that. Um, a lot of promises were made to me as yeah. a new associate and, you know, I would be able to grow with the firm and it would be a great experience and they would invest in me and having, speaking about family and the influence family has seen my dad work for Delta for 40 some odd years. Yeah. I wanted that. And I knew it didn't really exist as much, but I thought, oh, if I work hard enough, if I invest enough of myself into it, and obviously this person had represented that that would be the case, then that would work out. It wasn't. Didn't. Yeah. Um, I was told a lot, I was a luxury that he could not be, could not afford. So I was like, I don't know how to take that um, other than just poorly. So left there, uh, held out again for another great job. I mean, it really was my dream job. I had a couple other associates that were close to my age. The partner had been doing this for 30 some odd years. He really invested his time and effort into us. Uh, he taught us by allowing us to do it. He didn't yeah. you know, keep us under his thumb. Um, 
and that was good. It was a great environment. I learned a ton uh, for about a year and a half. And then 2017, uh, August 2017, um, that partner, the founding partner, committed suicide. Oh, gosh. And come to find out, he had been stealing from clients for eight years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And this wasn't like somebody that you go, oh, I could see that. No, this you is literally no the person. No, literally the person. Total that double life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then what? He, uh, he left notes about it. That was another reason we knew. Um, he, uh, just left us, left us with everything. So very quickly we had to pivot the senior associate at the time who had just recently become partner a month before this happened. Oh, um, we sat down and I said, look, I'll, I'll work to get through this. Like I want to try and salvage this, but we obviously have to cut overhead drastically. Um, so myself, this senior associate now partner, yeah. uh, and one paralegal went off on our own with all these cases. So he spent the next year dealing with the fallout from the previous firm. Um, I spent that next year working all those cases, uh, wow. which was a lot. Um, it was probably 60 some odd cases and over half of them were in litigation, which just means that there's a lot more going on, right? <laughs> a lot more going on. Um, it was insane. Um, I think it was one of those things we we're all operating on, um, adrenaline for the right. longest I was time. Just say that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I had been in therapy. I've been in therapy off and on, but I started doing it consistently again around, uh, when I was taking the bar. So I was in it, thank God in particular around this time already. Um, that said, it doesn't matter to a certain extent, right. When something that traumatic happens and it's, and you're going through that for so long. Um, it really, it finally just came to a head. Um, I felt like I wasn't being supported. I was basically running the firm by myself. Um, even though he very obviously had other things he needed to do and it was traumatic for all of us. I felt like he had just checked out. Um, and I couldn't keep pulling somebody along that didn't want to be there. Um, and didn't want to make it work. My name wasn't on the door at the end of the day. So I had never won my own law firm, never wanted to have my own business, none of that. But, you know, things change in life. So <laughs> I was actually in Portugal when I got a call from my paralegal. And I said, I, I love you, but why are you calling me halfway around the world? Right. And she said, I can't get in touch with the, the partner. And we had to do something immediate. And she needed my approval. And I said, yes, go ahead and do it. So I came back in the country and my partner was off at a retreat. And I'm all about retreats and being, you know, centered and finding yourself and being spiritual and in tune and, you know, self-improvement. But, um, a lot of things that he had done in the past had been like this new thing and it was great and new, but it never actually like evolved into anything more. It was just like the next great idea type thing. And so while he was gone, I, everything just came to a head one day. I called my husband home from work. And I said, I need you to be at home when I get home because I was so concerned about the place I had gone to mentally. Yeah. Um, and I've never had to do that. I mean, I've had depression, anxiety, and it's been managed for a number of years, but I've never gotten to that point where I've called him home. Um, and that's the, that's the point where I really hit my, my rock bottom. Yeah. And so when I got back in the office, my partner <clears throat> got back and he was sharing how great his retreat was. 
I was uh, doing some eye rolling just because, like I said, it was not something that ever lasted. And I said, well, while you were doing that, I was trying not to commit suicide. So things, something has changed. Like this is yeah. not going to work. Yeah. Um, and when I realized that he wasn't willing to make the effort to actually make it succeed, I just decided that we need to end things. And luckily we ended it amicably. I was able to take half the cases with me um, because quite frankly, he wasn't going to be able to work the whole caseload by himself anyway. Right. Um, and I decided, even though I never wanted my own firm and didn't want my own business, uh, what better time to try? So I had, I had had it in the back of my mind, um, and kind of done research and, you know, what steps I needed to take. So I was able to execute it in probably three or four weeks, be up and running. Um, so that's how I ended up with my law firm. And that's the backstory to the book. Um, but my goal with the book very much was, uh, not just to be salacious. There's a bunch of crazy stuff that happened in between there too. It's like John Grisham meets Maury. It's insane. <laughs> um, but to help people learn from it. Right. I, it, I had known for so long that I didn't want to, uh, be swept up in, you know, the status quo and be somebody that everybody else thought I should be as a lawyer, as yeah. a woman, whatever the case may be. But knowing that and actually believing that and feeling that and feeling confident in that, completely different things. So right? let's break that down. What does yeah. status quo mean to you? Yeah. So the status quo to me means personally and professional, right? It can occur in both spheres, but it's very much being what other people expect you to be in whatever role you're filling, whether it's mom, business owner, you know, I don't know, PTA member, whatever the case may yeah. be, daughter, um, daughter, wife, you know, spouse to somebody else. It's just, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot that we put on ourselves. Um, and there is also the external pressure coming in from other people, but it's the idea of feeling not enough. You know, I'm not enough. I'm not doing enough. Um, I should be this, I should be that. So the shoulds and the enoughs are where it manifests, I feel like, the most. Um, yeah. But also, I think in very zero-sum professions, which is what statistics I focus on in the book, only because, first of all, let me say the zero-sum professions are ones where if you're not winning, you're losing. Sometimes that's literal. Okay, thank um, you. I was like, what are those? Yes. Yeah. Sometimes it's literal. Sometimes it's figurative. So, you know, <clears throat> lawyers, when we go to trial, if we don't win, we lose. Doctors, if people aren't living through surgery or treatment, right. they're dying. So, uh, elite athletes literally losing or right. winning, um, nurses and corporate executives, same type of mentality. So it's not to say that other people don't experience the addiction to the status quo. It just manifests itself, I think more drastically and more immediately, um, in these professions. And I come from a profession where that was, that was my experience too. Right. So that was the backdrop, but I really wanted to help those people in particular. And hopefully just by sharing my story with other people that you're, it's not a fulfilling life, right? It's not a fulfilling life saying that you're not happy with who you are because you should be something else or you're not enough of fill in the blank. Um, the idea of living a fulfilling life is not based on who you are as a professional, it's based on who you are as an individual. Um, and it's not based on what you have either. I'm not going to deny money clearly makes things easier and we all have bills to pay, but I also think there's a happy medium, right? Yeah. We can have things that we enjoy. 
that we love to do traveling as an example. I love traveling, but I think there's a tipping point for a lot of people in life. You have so many things or so much money, but it doesn't mean that you're going to be happy, right? It doesn't in and of itself make you happy. Um, but I think that's what we're told, you know, we're told where you have to be a certain way to get certain things and that's, what's going to make us happy. Yeah. And it's just not true. Um, everybody's idea of happiness is different because everybody's different, but ultimately what it is, is living the best version of yourself. And to do that, you really have to tune into who you are. And that's the lesson that I, with the book hope to achieve is teach people to really focus on who they are and what they want out of life and what their true nature is for lack of a better phrase. So I, I like the, the title overcoming addiction to the status quo. And you and I kind of talked about this earlier this week, but, um, what would you say are your top one or two tips for our listeners to overcome status quo? Cause what you're trying to get people to do is to get out of their comfort zone, right? To change. Yes. Yeah. So I have some tips at the end and I'd say the two biggest ones are figure out what you value in life. Yeah. And question what you value if you think, you know, um, because I think if you really dig, everybody's going to end up saying the relationships in their life and the time that they get to spend doing the things they enjoy. Yeah. Um, and what are your values? I think really exploring those two things are going to be what puts you on a track towards achieving happiness for yourself. But it's not as simple as just writing those things down, right? You have yeah. to work through the process of shifting your entire perspective when most people, your perspective has been, I have to be, you know, fill in the blank to be happy. And I think, I think to those values, uh, people values get challenged, but they also get refined when we have struggles and obstacles. Absolutely. So Catherine, uh, what I've learned and I want you to riff on this is that, at least for me, and actually from a number of the people that I've interviewed, people's values get challenged and therefore refined when they hit obstacles, right? Or uh, failure or whatever it might be. What do you, how has that been true for you? I, I fully agree with that. I think, um, you know, we can have a lot of different values, but if you really boil it down, you come up with three or four that define you to the core. Um, and I think, I think most people, they want to follow the values that they believe in, but I think it takes being challenged to really, um, come to terms with what that means. Right. I don't, I do not. And I talk about this in the book. I do not subscribe to the fact that you have to fail to, shift your perspective and become happy. I think there's challenges in life that you overcome and you know, that's adversity and that's fine, but suffering doesn't make you a better person. It doesn't make your, you know, your journey any better. I don't believe that at all. Um, 
But I do think you really have to be tested to a degree and even testing so far as sitting with yourself and challenging your own perspectives and what you've known and what you've believed in. And that's what I had to do. I had a huge catalyst, a bunch of catalysts, obviously at the very beginning that just culminated, right? I had kept up this you know, sense of keeping it together for a year at that point. And even with therapy regularly with, like I said, managed anxiety and depression, nobody can handle that that long, right? Something's got to give. And even though I knew that was coming, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know how to sit down and plan for that. And quite frankly, I don't think you can, um, even if you know something like that's kind of coming. And that's really, I literally describe it as a switch being flipped. I just, that afternoon called my husband home. It was in a such a dark place. And the next day it, I just knew, I just knew that I didn't care what people thought of me. I didn't care what, you know, I was perceived as, you know, in terms of a lawyer, Um, I didn't care that I had checked off all the boxes or I needed to check off more boxes. And that's huge. I mean, I don't know, maybe some people would wish it would be that quick, but I also had worked long before that on a lot of, you know, self-improvement and you continue to work on self-improvement. It's not, you know, because it was that pivotal and crucial at that moment. It's not like I don't have to try anymore. Right. To, to be a better person. Um, but I do think it, it definitely had an impact with the, everything culminating at that one point um, for me to really shift my perspective. Catherine, I love that you took that pinnacle moment and you didn't put your head in the sand. You addressed it head on. Yeah. And I really, I, I do highlight that. And that's why I give such a backdrop of what happened because one of the chapters in my book is it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility. Um, that is a value that really has stuck with me, um, from before this happening and after is the sense of, um, pride I take in myself and who I am and what that means. Because at the end of the day, I feel like that's all you have is your reputation. Um, yeah, I like to say all you have is, is your character. Yeah, that's what it is. I think that's a better way to say it because I feel like reputation could be I don't know. You could be an influencer on Instagram. That's your reputation. That's not what I'm talking about. It's much more substantive than that. Yeah. Um, but you know, I didn't have to stick around that. My partner didn't have to stick around. The paralegal didn't have to stick around. Um, but we really wanted to try to make it work because I think we really enjoyed all working together. And we also felt like if we don't, who will, um, and you know, that's why I think that's a huge part. I know it is. It's a huge part of why I held on for so long. I had so many friends and family telling me, just walk away. You have literally done everything you can walk away. Yeah. And it wasn't enough for me. Right. There it is. The not enough. I hadn't done enough. I haven't, you know, proven enough. And what I really realized is at that point where everything came to a head was, However it happened, whether it was a switch or not being flipped, I had finally proven to myself that I was enough. And that is so freeing. Yeah. You can know that you want that. You can know intuitively, you know, how you should go about getting to that point. Right. But actually making it happen is so, uh, challenging and just so seemingly insurmountable, I feel like for a lot of people. Uh, and, and when you get there, it's such a gift. 
you yeah. know, cause you're like, ah, oh, okay, there it is. Yep. Yep. It's, it's been so freeing and, um, I don't want anybody to have to go through what I went through to get to that point. Um, and that's not to say, like I said before, that it's not going to be hard, um, that you're not going to have to challenge your own, you know, preconceived ideas about who you are and what you want out of life, but nobody should have to go through such trauma to, to make your life meaningful and enjoyable. Because really when you're on your deathbed, are you ever going to wish that you had worked more, um, that you had spent more hours giving to other people to the detriment of yourself, right? That's what the key is, is having this balance between being a meaningful human being for yourself, but being a meaningful human being for other people that you care about as well. And I think that's what everybody wants more of at the end of their life. I think everybody wants more of that too, since COVID. I think people's priorities are getting, okay, I'll speak for myself. I think, (laughs) uh, and what I've read too, about what what people value uh, is more on the forefront for them. I think it is. And I think that's why my book was, uh, timely. It, you know, I had started planning on writing it before COVID. Um, and I just think it's such a, it's a, you know, issue that permeates so many of us and so many aspects of our culture, but with COVID coming along and really isolating people and emphasizing how much relationships mean to us. Um, I think it's just all more timely and it almost creates an opportunity for people to say, you know, what was working in the past, it may not be working now. Um, so I'm really hopeful with it. And it was, it was good timing for me to write it initially, you know, right after everything had happened, I was uh, talking with my ghostwriter and it just, it was too soon. It was too soon after everything had happened for me that I couldn't be, I won't even say objective because you're never going to be objective about an experience like that, but I couldn't process it. Right. And also my perspective, especially was like, who wants to read that? Like, yeah. Okay. So can I pause for a second? Because (laughs) after I closed my business, my coach said to me, why don't you write a book? And I was like, yeah, right. I suck at writing books. There's no way I'm going to write a book and who would want to read it. And so listeners, I want you to listen to this. I started a podcast because of that. You're listening to the podcast. Catherine wrote a book. You're going to read the book. There are great stories out there. Don't hold back just because the not good enough gets in the way. Well, I think too, this is, I was actually reading out of a trial practice book, but, um, the idea that heroes are perception of heroes. And I'm not saying I'm a hero, but our perceptions of what heroes should be. Yeah. They're not, they're regular people that get called up. I mean, the quintessential story is what Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, anything like that. They get called up. They don't want to be in that position, but they rise to the occasion and they take on whatever, you know, you know, bad thing is out there. Um, that's what each of us do in so many ways. And yes, it's to a different scale and degree, but you don't have to be, you know, Oprah Winfrey who has gone through a traumatic, you know, experience growing up and everything and overcome a ton of things, but she's very, you know, famous. You don't have to be famous to still have those stories that are relevant to so many people. Oof. I love that. That's amazing. 
So, so I, I, I hadn't planned on writing the book. And then I went to a cabin with some girlfriends one weekend. And I've been friends with one of these girls since literally elementary school. And um, she asked me about it. I said, yeah, yeah, I just hadn't really thought about it. I wasn't going to do it. And then not two days later, my ghostwriter reached out to me and she said, uh, I saw you open your own firm. You know, I'd love to catch up with you. And it was far enough removed from what had yeah. happened that I could talk about it. Yeah. But it wasn't so far removed that I couldn't remember the feelings. And in fact, that's what kind of held me up last year, aside from the obvious of COVID, but right. really held me up mentally getting into the topics. I finally realized and made the connection like this is, it seems obvious, but I was not, pay, you know, perceiving it. It was taking me right back to that spot and those feelings. And um, it was tough, but I really wanted to be authentic for the reader of this book. Um, I'm a very authentic person. What you see is what you get. Um, and I feel like I would be doing a disservice not only to um, myself, but to anyone reading the book if I wasn't authentic about what I had gone through. I think I, I, as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, I always think about what are, what are my listeners supposed to hear from the speaker? And everybody has a different nugget of wisdom that they take away. Uh, but for me, the biggest thing you said is that like, to be a hero, you don't have to be famous. I love your comment about Lord of the Rings. It's that, it's that everyday person. And, uh, and I think that people need to hear that, especially right now. So I want to say thank you. You yeah. were going to say something. What were you going to say? No, I was just going to say, I think about how much, uh, like you said, people have gone through this past year. And I think a lot of people have been more in tune with themselves than they might otherwise have been. Yeah. And not to discredit what you've gone through. I mean, some days you get out of bed, you get your kids off to whatever type of school we're doing, you know, yeah. and you get food on the table somehow for everybody congratulations. I mean, there's a reason, let's face it, that I chose not to have children. <laughs> I mean, it is not. Me too, right. girl. <laughs> like, there is a reason. And it, I, I know they're not easy. Um, so I really do. I admire just, I say the average person. I don't mean that in a bad way at all. It's anybody out there, whether you have kids or not, but just getting up and facing things day to day, it's a lot. It's a yeah. lot. It may not seem a lot to you or like exceptional, that's what you but know, it is. It is exactly for you and what you're going through. That's exceptional. And that's what matters. It's your life. It's your journey. Okay. You are a gift. Thank you for being on here today. Thank you and, so much for having uh, me. Being so patient with my cold throughout the interview. Of course. Oh, listeners, you need to get the book overcoming addiction to the status quo. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on social media outlets at Fail Forward Pod. 